Today on Not Cleared, Morgan and I talked to Ambassador Pete Hoekstra about his time as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. We get into the idea of intelligence oversight in the U.S. government and finish by discussing how the Intelligence Committee has been misused in the past few years. I'm Matt Franklin, the Center's digital media producer, and I'm joined by the Center's Chief of Staff, Morgan Worthlin. And today we are talking to Ambassador Pete Hoekstra. He is currently the president of the Center's Advisory Board, but previously he's been an ambassador to the Netherlands, and before that he was a representative for Michigan's 2nd District. And during his time in Congress, he served as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. So we just wanted to talk about intelligence oversight especially. So can you just share, Pete, overall, how the House Intelligence Committee works and what is the purpose of it? The purpose of the Intelligence Committee is really twofold. Now, you also have to recognize that it works very, very differently depending on who the chairman of the committee or chairwoman of the committee may be. But under my leadership, what we really focused on was, number one, to drive the direction of what we wanted to have occur uh, in the intelligence community. Remember, the intelligence community is about 18 different government agencies. While some well-known ones, uh, the CIA, they're part of the intelligence community. Uh, You know, they do human intelligence. Uh, NSA, the National Security Agency, they do electronic eavesdropping. They snoop on people around the world. You know, phones, electronic data, and those kinds of things. Uh, you have the National uh, Reconnaissance Office. The uh, you know they build satellites. So the first thing is, what the committee should do is to set the direction for the intelligence community. You know, the CIA, and you know, one of the things that we did while I was the chairman, saying, you know, we we need more focus on human intelligence. Uh, some of this other stuff is okay. But if you don't have human intelligence, so uh, you're not going to get a, a complete perspective. So we moved resources and direction to increasing human intelligence. Can we you also explain what human intelligence is for people that may not know. Sure. Spies. <laughs> 007. The fun uh, stuff. The fun stuff, the sexy stuff. At least that's the way that it's portrayed in the media. Uh, but giving full credit to the people who actually do it on a daily basis. Uh, It can be, uh, it's not nearly as glamorous, uh, and it's much more dangerous. You know, the first person that was killed in Afghanistan after 9-11 was a CIA operative. Uh, And so, you know, at the CIA headquarters, you'll see a wall of stars uh, not names, but each one of the stars represents an individual who worked at the CIA who was killed in the line of duty. So you have, you know, human intelligence, uh, you know, signals intelligence. So, you know, we decide, you know, the committee helps set the direction that says, you know, we need to invest in these types of satellite programs so that we either have the visual imagery, the pictures, uh, that help us, you know, get an insight into who our enemies are, uh, or the satellites or the equipment that may help us uh, steal electronic information. How difficult is it to keep all those 18 plus agencies on the same page? Well, that's, again, one of the things that uh, the Intelligence Committee does. Uh, and we did that when we tried to, when we created the Director of National Intelligence 
after 9-11. You know, the committee at that point in time did its second job, which was oversight. So we did an extensive investigation into what happened and, and where the shortcomings were leading up to 9-11. And one of the things that we identified through that oversight activity was that we had stovepipes within the intelligence community. What's a stovepipe? It means that, you know, the, the folks that are working intelligence at the FBI, they had a, a batch of information that was available to them. Then there was a batch of information that was available at the CIA. There was a batch of information that might have been available at the Defense Intelligence Agency. But what wasn't happening is that this information from point A to point B or from organization to A to organization B, they didn't have insights into uh, each other's information. So none of them had a complete understanding or awareness of all the information that was available in the intelligence community. And so we helped create the DNI that, and that's a great example of, you know, what's the function of the committee? We did the oversight, we identified the shortcomings, and then we proposed a solution and we created the director of national intelligence whose responsibility was to coordinate the different organizations uh, and make sure that, once again, we wouldn't be in a situation where we had stovepipes of information which prohibited us from getting a total uh, clearer picture uh, through all of the different kinds of intelligence that we had. Right. I may be jumping ahead a bit, but um, that makes sense, the, the reason for creating the DNI. Our um, boss, Fred Flights, was considered for the job of DNI under the Trump administration, and he's written extensively about how he thinks it's um, not a helpful, it's basically become its own intelligence agency and, and that he thinks it should be shut down. What is your thought on that? You know, I, I wrote the legislation that created it. Uh, it's a very, very different organization uh, than what I envisioned. Uh, you know, I worked, and it was a very much a bipartisan bill. Jane Harmon, who was the ranking Democrat, Susan Collins, a senator, and Joe Lieberman, uh, you know, also a senator. The four of us wrote this legislation and we put it together. Uh, but I was chairman of the conference committee that brought together all these different perspectives. We all envisioned a relatively lean organization that the primary function was to provide the coordination for the intelligence community. Uh, and I think Fred Flights's critiques of what it has become are, are valid, that it's become its own intelligence agency, developing its own materials and, you know, and those types of things. It was never intended for that to occur. Where Fred and I differ is Fred argues for the, and has stated that, you know, the, the DNI should be abolished uh, and eliminated. Uh, I think it needs to be reformed, streamlined, and, you know, let the various organizations, again, go about doing their job and not having a duplicative function uh, as the DNI. Yeah. One of the great perks of the center is that we all can hold a a variety of viewpoints. Um, 
to that point, could you talk a bit about sort of the competition among the intelligence agencies, why they're so, um, they, they like to sort of guard their territory and keep their intel to themselves. Can you explain that a bit, why that's the case? Sure. It's always the one to be the, it's always nice to be the smartest person in the room. Uh, <laughs> if you've got information uh, that, you know, that when let's say, hey, hey, let, we're looking at North Korea today and you bring in the different agencies and, you know, the person representing one agency brings up some information and uh, the other people in the room look around and say, wow. But it's about influence, it's about control, and it's also about money. You know, the the budget of, you know, or the intel community, you know, more than $80 billion. But, you know, at times, well, there's always a cap on how much money you're going to get. And there's always a uh, possibility that certain times, you know, the budget, the overall budget may be cut. And so then organizations are fighting for their, what they see as their own lifeblood. So the protecting of their information and their capabilities and those types of things, uh, you know, is one that they believe protects for what many bureaucrats believe is one of the most important things is protecting their budgets. And so, um, you know, in, in a perfect world, you would have these intelligence agencies working together, working together effectively, proactively sharing information and those types of things. But in the bureaucratic world of Washington, D.C., that doesn't always happen. As an ambassador uh, and also as the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, you know, I I travel to embassies around the world. And you would get to some embassies and at the grassroots level, man, the teamwork behind uh, the intelligence community, they would be, they'd be on message and they would be on task. They would effectively be working together and you'd go, yes, at least at the grassroots level is working. And I can say that's how our intelligence people uh, in the Netherlands work. Uh, But then there are other embassies that you would go to and if they didn't tell you explicitly, which sometimes they would. Uh, but you could feel the tension between different organizations, and you recognized, "Whoa, this is not this is this is not good." Uh, Defense Intelligence Agency is not working with the CIA. They're you know, they are competing with each other, and you know they're not an effective team. And so, in Washington, it's much harder to get an effective team. I will say that in my experiencing my experience traveling around the world the vast majority of the grassroots folks didn't let the politics in Washington interfere with the work that they were doing at a grassroots level. They were effective teams getting us the information we needed uh, to make the most accurate uh, types of decisions and assessments. So on an earlier episode, we talked to Fred about when he was working at the CIA and he would work directly with the president's daily brief, which is this big batch of intel that the president gets each morning and fred mentioned how there's this like innate competition between cia fbi all these intel agencies i mean in an ideal world like you said they would all be collaborating with each other and sharing intelligence and everything but they're not is do you have any i know it's not an easy question but is there a way to remedy that it all comes from the top you know the leadership at the top needs to put together a uh 
forceful message that says, hey, we are one team, one mission, and those types of things. I know that that, that is a message that Mike Pompeo sent down uh, when he was the Secretary of State, uh, and it was consistent with the message that he sent uh, when he was director of the CIA for a short period of time. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the message that is sent down. The inherent politics of a bureaucratic world puts in place uh, these, this competition mode. I could, you know, I could see it uh, in the Netherlands, you know, when a report was sent from our Intel folks in the Netherlands to Washington, every once in a while, something that we sent in would make it into the president's daily brief. They were thrilled. It was a huge accomplishment. Uh, you know, hey, we were recognized by the intel community, by the DNI who prepares this daily brief, uh, that the information that we developed was important enough for the president to see on that particular day. So, you know, that that's the inherent competitive nature of uh, the bureaucracy. And the competition isn't always bad. It's good to have you know, people competing uh, as long as it does, doesn't interfere or destroy the cooperation. Right. I want to come back to some of that. But first, could you explain what the Gang of Eight is? Sure. Uh, the Gang of Eight uh, includes the, in the House of Representatives, it includes the Speaker of the House, the Minority Leader of, uh, in the House, the chairman and the lead person for the opposition party uh, of the intelligence committee. So in the, in the time that I was the chairman, it would have been Speaker Hastert, Nancy Pelosi, Pete Hoekstra, and Jane Harmon. And then you've got the same four people or the same four positions on the Senate side. So that's the gang of eight. And what did they, what's the purpose of it? What did they do? Well, at certain times there are, uh, there are very sensitive missions, all right? And the president has a responsibility to f- keep Congress fully informed. And the framework that the executive branch and Congress have put in place that they've agreed on is that on certain high-sensitive matters, only eight members of Congress will be briefed by the executive branch uh, because it is vitally important that this information not leak out. And so there's a great concern about, like in the House, making the information available to, you know, perhaps the 21 members on the Intelligence Committee um, or, you know, the slightly smaller number on the Senate Committee. And so you're saying, hey, we're, we're going to share this with eight people. We're not going to share it with 40 because it is so highly sensitive. I had a number of times where that happened, a number, you know, two to four times per year. And the, uh, you know, and then Congress can push back and say, as, as a gang of eight, we, got, we, we can come back and say, you know what? We know that this is sensitive, but this information is so important and so strategic to the direction of the country, we think you need to make it available to at least the entire committee. 
And you know, on occasions we had those discussions and uh, sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't, sometimes they would, but it might be six or eight weeks later. And you say, well, you know, Pete, what kind of activity would fall into such a super, super secret category? And I'll give you one example. I wasn't there uh, when it was finally executed, uh, but I was, uh, you know, through the process, there were occasions where the Gang of Eight would have been updated on here's our progress in terms of finding bin Laden. And shortly before I left Congress uh, in January of 2011, uh, I saw Leon Panetta, and who was then uh, the director of the CIA. And Leon said, we've got a bead on him. I knew who him was. Uh, so it's kind of like, but he didn't get into specifics. He just said, Hey Pete, we've got a, you know, we got a bead on him. And I'm sure that in the next five months from January of 2011 until when the hit took place in May of 2011, I'm sure that it was a gang of eight item where these eight members of Congress would have been told, you know, through the process as they start getting closer and closer, you know, we think he's in Pakistan. We're highly confident that he's in Pakistan. We think, and we're plan- We think we can execute a raid uh, and either capture or kill him. We are planning a raid, and then at some point in time, they were probably told, you know, in the next forty-eight, seventy-two hours, there will be a raid in Pakistan. Uh, where we believe with high probability that we are going to be able to, uh, you know, take care of bin Laden, either capture him. uh, And I'm sure that they were also informed that there was a possibility uh, that he would be killed in the raid. So, uh, you know, that's something that Congress needs to be a part of that discussion. They have to be a part of that decision-making, but it should be limited to eight members, not to 40. Right. So one of those things that would seem to me to fit under that category would be back in 2016. Let's pretend for a minute that if the FBI was genuinely concerned that the Trump campaign had been infiltrated by Russian agents or whatever, if there was genuine concern there, wouldn't it have made sense that they would A, give the the candidate a defensive briefing or B, at least talk to the Gang of Eight about something as sensitive as a FISA warrant on a presidential campaign? Yes. Number one, they would have given a defensive uh, briefing to the president. We've done that with Congress. Okay. One of the responsibilities of the committee is to protect the integrity of uh, our congressmen and congressmen and congresswomen. So the, um, what you would run into sometimes is not alleging any, wrongdoing by a member of Congress, but we would meet regularly with with the FBI. They would update us on their programs and their activities. And sometime they might say, um, hey, you know, we've got some concerns, not, again, about the behavior of this member, but that they would say, you know, hey, this member, we believe that Russian agents 
have been reaching out or, you know, have been meeting with this member. Uh, and, you know, the member probably has no idea that the person that they are in contact with is a Russian agent. And we'd say, oh, okay. And then they would say, you know, we would review it and we'd probably come back and say, you know what, you really got to tell this guy. You really got to tell this person what's going on. And that's what would happen. And obviously you take a different direction if uh, you were told that knowingly, uh, confidently, we're saying that this person is meeting with uh, is meeting with a Russian agent and they know it and they're transferring information. Then we would take a different pattern. Uh, but sure, Congress would be informed of those types of activities because uh, it was our job to make sure that Congress stayed secure. But if there were an effort targeting the president of the United States, uh, of course, uh, at least at a minimum, the Gang of Eight should uh, or would have been informed. The things that James Comey testified before Congress is that the investigation in 2016 was too sensitive to tell the Gang of Eight about. Um, which again, if you had been chairman at that point and had heard him say something like that, what would your response have been? Because Congress is supposed to oversee everything and, and it's not the FBI director's He doesn't have the ability to say that Congress can't see something, right? Correct. The Gang of Eight should have access to uh, the same information that the President of the United States has. We are separate but equal branches of government. Uh, James Comey or the director of the FBI, the director of the CIA, uh, you know, of any of these intel agencies, their job description doesn't include, you know, point number five. I have the discretion or the responsibility to determine what information should or should not be shared with Congress. Uh, point number five reads, I will share any and all information uh, of a sensitive nature with Congress. Uh, I may determine whether it should be the gang of eight uh, or the full committees. They don't have the option about of sharing information. Uh, they have the responsibility to share information and uh suggest how it be shared with Congress, but Congress, like I said earlier, can always push back on exactly who within Congress is informed. Right. So some of, I know that there are many times that agencies are resistant to giving information. Um, and if they do so, they can redact it. How, as chairman, what are the tools you have to push back on uncooperative bureaucrats? Funding, mm. pressure. I mean, you know, uh, and you're right. I mean, Jane Harmon and I had a, a phrase that we started to use, which was 20 questions. You know, I, I still remember one, per, one individual who was especially good at this. He would come in, he would testify, and then two or three days later, we would read something in the newspaper about what his agency was doing. And we'd say... We just asked him about that on Tuesday, and here it is Friday. He didn't tell us this on Tuesday. He's, you know, he, he didn't share with us. And so we'd call him back in the next week. And, you know, 
when you're sitting in these hearings, you know, even in, and you'll see it in public hearings, there's always a ba the backbenchers, the people who have notes and materials uh, that help the person testify. So we, we brought them back and we did this multiple times and we would say, hey, we asked you about this last week and on Friday, this is what we see. You didn't answer our question. You, you know, why are you not telling us what you're telling, what you're supposed to be telling us? And he would come back and say, he'd get a piece of paper from the person behind him and he'd say, uh, excuse me, chairman. Uh, these are the specific questions that the committee asked me last week, Tuesday. Here are my answers. And as you can see, I answered your questions and you would, you would look at them and say, yeah, you can make that assessment. But we were that we were within two degrees of what came out on Friday and you didn't share that with us. And he'd come back and say, you never asked me about that. And you would say, you, you'd just be totally frustrated because rather than the give and take and say, you know, Mr. Chairman or, Ms. Ranking Member, I know what you're asking, uh, and here's the answer to your question, but, you know, let me be a little bit more expansive, and let's talk about this whole issue, and here's some of the other stuff that we're finding or discovering or that we know, and you'd say, you know, then you'd, you'd, you'd actually have a, a good interaction, but no, this was all about them hiding the information uh, for whatever reason they had, and it was... Uh, so like we, we said, it's 20 questions. Yeah, to, to, maybe to get the information you, you want you'd, around a narrow issue, you'd have to ask 20 questions to get to it because if you just asked one or two around the general area, they, were never, they would never be expansive in their answer knowing what you were kind of talk, what you were trying to get at if you didn't ask exactly the right specific question, you wouldn't get the information. If these uh, people were so not concerned about how not to answer these questions and they were going through all these different ways, how to not address what yeah, they needed right. to, then I feel like all these issues could be resolved. Yes. For most of them. And, you know, and what happened is the people that were evasive in that, they, they eventually lost the trust of the committee. You know, it's kind of like you couldn't have a, because you're talking about, you're talking about national security issues, keeping America safe. And they were hiding information. I find that you know there were there were certain exceptions, people that you could really work with. Uh, many times, those were the ones that had congressional experience. Uh, Leon Panetta was an example of a as a Republican. He's a Democrat working in a Democrat administration, but he was good. Okay, you ask him a question, and he'd say, "Pete, you know, I know what you're asking, but here's really what you should be asking." And and he'd share the information. He'd come over informally you know, bring some rolls and donuts and you could just sit down and, you know, talk about the topics of the day. And, you know, we could all let down our guard and, you know, he'd leave and say, wow, that, that was, that was much better than a hearing. Um, and then you had the others that would, you know, wouldn't, uh, share with you. They, they were arrogant. They didn't like Congress. You know, they were people that had worked in the profession for 30 years, you know, to the point where they were now leading in, uh, you know, where they were now leading a massive agency with thousands of employees. And they're wondering, why do I have to answer questions from these neophytes 
who have maybe only been you know, working on intelligence for four or five years. They have no military background. They haven't served the country. Uh, you know, why do I need to answer questions? Why do I have to answer their questions? You know, they're dummies. I wouldn't even hire them into my organization. Uh, that attitude is prevalent in DC and it's so infuriating because they, they work for you, not the other way around. Congress represents the people who pay all of these salaries for these bureaucrats and the, the attitude of we know better is so aggravating. Oh, it's, it's infuriating. And you pointed out very effectively, Morgan, they have to answer our questions because that's how our government is set up. Right. Every official, whether it's a congressperson, whether it's the president, or whether it's one of these people leading one of the, you know one of these agencies, and they fact- report. They they are accountable to the American people. I will tell you that, you know, like the people at the NSA, the CIA, these are some of the smartest people I've ever met. But that doesn't give them a special privilege. No, and sometimes I mean there are a lot of smart people that don't have a lot of common sense too but it's more important in my opinion for unelected bureaucrats to answer these questions and to be more accountable because at least with members of congress and the presidency the american people can vote them out of office if they misbehave where we rely on congressional oversight to make sure that these massive privileges and powers that we've been get, that we've given to these agencies are not abused which especially in the last few years they clearly have been abused. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, and as we also find out when they're abused, I mean, you know, who's been accountable for the Russia scandal? Nobody. Okay. Who's been accountable uh, for the uh, Afghanistan, uh, you know, the, the recent debacle in Afghanistan? No one. Uh, you know, it's, it's totally frustrating. In Congress, yeah, you do have to go out and you have to get reelected every two years. You have to make a compelling case that you are the best person to represent that district, um, you know, in Congress. And if you don't make the compelling case, uh, you can be voted out of office. Uh, it's a different accountability for bureaucrats. Right. Um, so one of the things, too, I just wanted to, to make a point is that with any of these things, if it was an open hearing and you were asking about something sensitive, the person could say, we can talk about it. They could brief you behind closed doors so that, it, you know, in a classified briefing, right? Right. Okay. Um, so getting into the abuses of the last couple of years, it was the work of the Republican side of the House Intel Committee under Devin Nunes that brought to light most of the abuse of the, you know, throughout the whole Russia scandal. Um, right. But Adam Schiff... <laughs> is quite quite an interesting person i guess um he he lied he clearly lied we know that for a fact he claimed numerous times on tv that he had evidence proving that trump colluded with russia but he knew as early as july 2017 that um because we have the transcripts from here from classified briefings where james clapper adam um loretta lynch sally yates all said that they didn't have any evidence of trump colluding with Russia or anyone else in the campaign. And yet Adam Schiff kept going on TV for years saying that he knew and he had, um, that it had happened and he had evidence. And then in 2019, he conducted an impeachment of the president 
which is unusual in that it was through the Intel Committee instead of the Judiciary Committee. Um, I guess just what what do you think of Adam Schiff and, and his job as as chairman of the Intel Committee? Well, I think um, Adam Schiff has done tremendous damage to the Intelligence uh, Committee in the oversight role that Congress and that committee have. Uh, I mean, it's it's incomprehensible that the organization that works in secret, the Intelligence Committee, conducted an impeachment which should have been one of the most transparent operations that ever happens uh, or is conducted on Capitol Hill. It's like, explain to me, why is the Intelligence Committee conducting an impeachment process? You know, that's that that should go through the Judiciary Committee. That's that's where all the legal minds are. Uh, it's not on the uh, Intelligence Committee. What he did with the Russian, uh, the Russia hoax, uh, totally politicized the uh, Intelligence Committee and made it almost impossible for it to do the normal work that you expect to have occur on a daily basis. And so the Russia hoax, the impeachment, uh, the statements by, at that time, Chairman Schiff uh, have totally uh, damaged the uh, the credibility uh, of the Intelligence Committee. It's going to take years for that committee not only to build up its credibility again with the American people, but also to build up its credibility uh, with the agencies that it has oversight over. That's always been hard to uh, that's always been hard to manage and to to maintain. Uh, but you know, I'm sure that this has been damaged. You've got all these organizations when the chairman is making claims, I've got this information, it, you know, the intelligence community, they're kind of looking around and saying, what information is he talking about? Because uh, this is a direct reflection on us. Um, and then there's no information around at all. You know, it's like, they're mad, they're disappointed, uh, and the the process just breaks down. It, it's really disappointing. I I'm very thankful that for the time that I led the committee, I had a a partner, Jane Harmon. Uh, she would describe us as an old married couple. What does that mean? It means sometimes we would fight like crazy. We had different perspectives on intel and the role and, and those types of things, but we both loved our jobs. We respected the people in the intelligence community and the work that they did, and we had our issues with them in terms of getting information. Uh, but we would fight like crazy, but we would do it behind closed doors. Uh, and we were able to do our work effectively. I mean, we were the ones that, you know, for the first time in 50 years, actually passed a serious reform of the intelligence community. And, you know, we can have different opinions in terms as to whether it works or not, but we passed it in a bipartisan way. And so, uh, you know, uh, I'm proud of our tenure and what we did there. So I want to go back to just how the Intel committee was in charge of the whole impeachment thing. If you listen to all the stuff that we've been talking about in this podcast so far, we're talking about intelligence and national security and the same people that played a role in killing Osama bin Laden are then trying to impeach the president. It just doesn't add up. I don't understand how nobody 
either called out Adam Schiff or just raised a question like, why are we spending our time on this? Well, I mean, you know, that, that's a call of, uh, at that point in time, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She can assign that work to whatever committee she wants. And she decided that it would be conducted by the Intelligence Committee, led by Adam Schiff. And the disappointing thing, obviously, the whole time that Nancy Pelosi has been the leader, uh, and before that she was a member of the Intelligence Committee, so she, she's familiar with the sensitivities and the importance of that committee. And, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely uh, disheartening that a Speaker of the House would put the Intelligence Committee into the middle of a political firestorm recognizing what the implications, long-term implications would be uh, to that committee. Well, if I recall correctly, too, it wasn't just that they wanted it through the Intel Committee, but they wanted to do it behind closed doors. And I think Republicans, success. I, I think at first they were just briefing the Intelligence Committee members, and then Republicans said, no, we're going to have to do this out in the open if you want to do this. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean... <laughs> Like I said, I believe impeachment should be the most transparent process that goes on in Capitol Hill. People need to know what the charges are against the president, what the evidence is uh, against the president. The president needs the opportunity to provide a defense uh, and uh, so that the American people can make a judgment, not just a small group of people on Capitol Hill. who make Right, and it's also a bad it's a bad look if they're trying to do all this behind closed doors, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because at that point in time, you know, those of us that support a president, those of us that may be opposed to a certain president who's going through the impeachment process, you know, it's no longer becomes kind of a quasi-judicial process. It clearly becomes a political process. And then you're also run by, by leaks. You know, I mean, you go through impeachment and some of the stuff behind closed doors, you know, it still becomes a becomes somewhat transparent only because information is leaked, which may or may not be accurate and may or may not be leaked in context. Right. So then whoever's leaking gets to control the entire narrative, which was kind of the point, right? Yep. And, you know, uh, leaking of classified or sensitive information is against the law. And so uh, and then people are, are, are led to speculate and in the intelligence community. The, the intelligence world speculation is a bad idea. Right. Well, and then to come come to find out, um, you know, essentially this whole thing got kicked off because Colonel Vindman said that Trump was, quote, not sticking to the established government policy in Ukraine, which is not even a thing. The, the president sets policy and the agencies are supposed to carry that out. Um, was that a common attitude that you, Colonel Vindman's contempt for the president and his his feelings of superiority was that common among intelligence professionals that you encountered well uh you know the uh by and large the people that lead the intelligence agencies recognize the limitations of their role. They are there to implement the president's policies, whether they like them or not. Uh, but what we saw with the batch of leaders uh, who were there in 2016, Clapper, 
Brennan, Michael Hayden. You know, they they totally politicized uh, the intelligence community, at least at the top levels. You know, pushing this Russian hoax. Uh, Comey was involved in this because they despised the president and they despised the uh, the direction that he was taking them in. He was, you know, the president in 2016, 2017, was a change agent. He was a disruptor in our foreign policy. I believe that they needed, that, that, you know, that environment needed the disruption. It would be a positive thing. Uh, but they dug in their heels and they decided that they were going to fight the man and the policies. And that's not their job. And if you take a look at especially Brennan, Clapper, and Hayden, their other role, you know, post-government has been, you know, has been awful. They are the front face for most of the liberal media in continuing to trash America first policies and Donald Trump. And I can tell you as the ambassador to the Netherlands for three years under Donald Trump, his policies were working. They were effective, and they were making America more safe and more secure each and every day. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of astounding to see what's happened in just 10 months of the current president. And one of the things that General Milley has certainly made a name for himself, and, you know, it's come to light. I think I think it's he said he gave Woodward um, background information for the book, but it seems like he was bragging about the fact that he called the Chinese and said, hey, uh, we're not going to, the president, if there's a nuclear, there's not going to be a nuclear strike. And he said that they, he had intelligence that they thought that the United States was going to strike them. Um, It would be easy to prove that that were were true or not, right? Wouldn't the, wouldn't, shouldn't Congress be able to ask him or find out whether there actually was intelligence to that effect? Yeah, they could. And they should. Uh, But he's, you know, the, uh, there should be notes, so they should be able to find out exactly. I mean, I've, I've heard speculation. Uh, some of my sources in the intelligence community said that he also told the Chinese that if they attacked Taiwan, that the United States would not respond. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it's like with the actions that this man has taken, I don't find that out of the realm of possibility. You know, he, he set himself up as someone above the law and above the process. And I believe that, you know, at a minimum, Milley, Austin, and Blinken should all be censured by Congress for their total failure of Afghanistan. Uh, And I would hope that they would then resign because it would demonstrate that they have lost the, they have lost the confidence of Congress so that they should resign. Uh, but I have little expectation that that's going to happen. Uh, you know, and what what Millie did, you know, no, you can't do that. You know, you don't make that call to your Chinese counterpart. That That is something that if it's necessary, it's done by the Secretary of State in consultation with the President of the United States. That also just sounds like we've been talking about the collaboration between the U.S. intel community. That sounds like information that should be there. There, I don't know why you would give that to our enemy. Right. 
Yeah. Well, his excuse is that he was trying to calm them down, but again, that wasn't his authority. And if you were looking at this, if it were a different country and the head of the military took that kind of role, it would seem like a coup. I mean, it's a total abuse of authority. And if that is true, that he told the Chinese that the United States would not respond if they um, invaded Taiwan. Well, we've had this week endless um, jets buzzing over Taiwan. It seems like the Chinese are increasingly threatening that country. Um, that's a big deal. And and that needs to, people should come forward and, and make that clear if that's what he did, because maybe that's part of their increased sure, it's part of their calculus. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, no, I mean, if you want to have military to military dialogue, that's fine. I'm not sure exactly what they're talking about, and I'm not sure what you're talking to your enemies about. Um, but the, uh, you know, when you get into policy, it's 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 kind of like, excuse me, uh, Mr. General, you know, you are one silo. You don't have the perspectives, the insights that the president uh, has. Please, uh, please don't address this. This is, you know. You're, you're, you're out of your lane. And when they go out of their lane uh, in that significant of a way, they should get out of their job. And it just seems like crappy policy to be telling your military plans to your enemy. That's one of the things that I've said on this podcast before that I think made Trump's foreign policy really successful is that he was kind of a wild card and the Chinas and North Koreas and Russias of the world weren't really sure what he was going to do and when he was going to do it. You know, but they did understand that this was a, a man that would stand up for America's perspective. And, you know, the great thing, you know, I, I look back and I've, I've talked to some of my friends in Europe, uh, you know, in European governments since uh, I've been back. And, you know, the, the, the media narrative, both here and in Europe, is, you know, Trump is a crazy man. You know, he'll do stuff. He'll go off on his own. He won't consult with us and all of that. And in reality, Trump was very professional. Yeah, he, we caught Europe by surprise a couple of times. But there were other times where when we caught them by surprise, we provided them with the opportunity to give us feedback and give us input. And the president actually changed his mind. The best example that I have is at one time, the president proposed pulling our troops, all of our troops out of Syria and the Dutch, the media, the government, you know, they went uh, apoplectic. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. Uh, as did other governments in Europe. And after a process of, I don't know exactly how long it took, four, six weeks, the president decided that the uh, role of a limited number of troops in U.S. troops in Syria would continue. The end of the story or the rest of the story, the Dutch pulled their folks out. It's kind of like, so for the next, you know, for the next year or so, you, you'd look at the Dutch and say, let's see, explain this to me. The president announces he's going to pull U.S. troops out of Syria. You guys, you know, blast the president, blast the U.S. about this rash decision of pulling the U.S. troops out of Syria. We decide to stay, and then you say, oh, the mission is over, we're pulling our troops out. Uh, you know, who, who's surprising who here? 
Donald Trump on foreign policy, uh, you know, I think there are people in Europe that were, are, you know, are now regretting uh, that Donald Trump is no longer the president because they've been the ones that have been surprised by this current administration, the Biden administration, by pulling out, you know, pulling out of Afghanistan. They all voiced their opinions. This is a bad idea. Uh, but, you know, the president and his team had their blinders on and they pulled them all out and the dis- results were disastrous, uh, which is what many of our European allies expected it to be. That's interesting. So they weren't listened to. What was the what was the point of the Dutch taking their troops out of Syria? Was it just, oh, well, the United States has got this. We don't have to deal with it anymore? No, they uh, they they hung up on a uh, they said, oh, we no longer have a. Uh, a mandate from parliament that allows our troops to stay. And it's like, you know, it it was a bad it was a bad argument on their part. And I think. Uh, I think their ministries uh, were embarrassed by the position that uh, they found themselves in, that they criticized the U.S. and then did exactly what they were criticized. They they did exactly what they were criticizing the Americans uh, for that we were thinking about doing. I think it's interesting, too. I think Millie's thought process was probably, well, if the Chinese know we're not going to attack them, they won't attack us, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way the Chinese think. It's not about the United States. It's that they have their own independent ambitions. And I think that the West has um, their own slanted view of the world because of the way our our processes work in our uh, liberal democracies. And Europe tends to sort of pressure the United States into multilateral diplomatic agreement, those types of things. You know, the process is what's valued, not the end results. It's not oh, let's keep Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. It's, well, we need a treaty with all the, a bunch of nations in agreement. Um, What did you, as ambassador in Europe, what, would you agree with that assessment? What do you think, you know, what's kind of the general attitude of the Europeans to to the United States, or at least the the Dutch? Well, no, I think it's the Europeans. I'll quote you in my book, uh, because I think your assessment is exactly accurate. Europeans love process, you know, Uh, you know, we pulled out of the WHO. The WHO was a tool of China in the initial stages of the Wuhan virus. Uh, pardon my use of Wuhan, but uh, I believe that's what it was. And we pulled out. And, the, you know, the Dutch and many Europeans were very upset, you know, and you know, say, well, the organization doesn't work. Right. Better together. That's a good way of putting that's, it. That's That's how they put it. Uh, I just met with some Dutch folks a couple of days ago and a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, they were talking about this and, you know, they said, you know, we can't understand why you, the U S has never become a party of the international criminal court in the Hague. I said, yeah, because we believe that if our troops misbehave, you know, behave inappropriately on the battlefield, we have the systems and the processes in place to hold them accountable. And we're not going to transfer that over to some international court who may or may not have the same values that we have or whatever. We, we can take care of ourselves. And, you know, and then, he, and then I said, you know, we're not into giving up sovereignty. 
And the response was, well, you know, that's exactly what we're doing in Europe, you know, as, as countries. We've given up tremendous sovereignty to Brussels. Yeah, and, and how I said, works yeah. And, and I said, you know, that's your view. And you think that's okay, but that's not where we are. We're not going to give up national sovereignty. We are a nation state and we believe that's important. And we are not going to turn over our future to international organizations that don't have any accountability, where Europe is very, very willing to do that. Right. To their detriment, I would add. And it's funny, too, because it's not about the effectiveness of it either. You know, the U.N. is such a joke with the, um, you know, they'll vote to condemn police abuse in the United States. And this is you have China who has a concentration camp full of people right now that is condemning the United States for human rights abuses. Um, it's a very con convenient tool for them to avoid talking about their own abuse. No, China's committing genocide. Right. <laughs> you know, these international organizations won't condemn the Chinese. You know, so yeah, no. But, you know, it, uh, so it's just a different perspective in Europe. Uh, and not by, not by all of Europe. You know, Hungary, Poland, some of these countries are willing to stand up for their national sovereignty. But overall... The, uh, you know, the majority of countries uh, have that theme, better together, right. even <laughs> better together, even though it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the former Eastern Bloc knows the consequences of not standing up. Um, yep. So last question, just with the barrage of chaos that's come as a result of the Biden administration and the terrible choices they've made, especially foreign policy wise, what can Congress do to really push back? What kind of powers does the Constitution give to Congress to help um, hold this president accountable? I mean, again, the biggest tool of Congress is funding. But, you know, in this current Congress where the control of Congress is by, uh, you know, by the same party uh, that holds the White House, uh, you know, there's not there's not even effective oversight. Funding is one. Oversight is uh, is the second, you know, call these people in and hold them accountable for their performance or lack of performance and have Millie detail, you know, and get the people that were in the room when he had the call with the Chinese and who, who took the notes, have them come in and read them out loud and give them to Congress. But, you know, Congress's most effective tool is the power of the purse and the ability to call hearings. And the, Congress will not use either one of those levers against the Biden administration. So the minority can't hold their own hearings, right? They can, but uh, there's no, uh, you know, they, they, they're, they're rump hearings, okay? Um, they're not official congressional hearings. And the people that they bring in to testify, you know, they can't put it this way. They can't call Billy up and say, hey, we're having a Republican hearing uh, on Thursday. We want you here at 10 o'clock. He won't show up. Yeah. And they don't have subpoena power? No subpoena power, no. Got it. That's depressing. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, elections have consequences. The election of 2020, uh, you know, we will have to, uh, you know, there are certain things that can be done to change the momentum or change the direction uh, of the party that has been, that, you know, successfully won an election. Uh, but really the, the first major opportunity to adjust strategy and to adjust uh, the direction of the country won't happen until uh, November of 2022.
well, let's hope nothing terrible happens. Well, more yep. terrible. <laughs> more terrible. I mean, there have been uh, a whole range of terrible things that have already happened in, uh, you know, 10 short months. Well, Ambassador Hochschild, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you. Thank you.